Okay, and we were, and actually, um, Gabby, could you get the door? No, don't, never mind. Jimmy, could you get the door? Yeah, there are two sheets coming around. They're going in different directions. It's like the circulation of money. It's like things going in bi-directionally. That's why I did it that way. Clearly. Okay, what the two sheets contain. Uh, we'll, we may look at this, some of this stuff a little bit today, but you should certainly read it by tomorrow. Um, did anyone read the essay, The Brief History of Interest? that was also on the syllabus with a link and stuff. Oh, good. Um, so, you, so that's really interesting. It's definitely worth reading. It's short and um, very well done. One of the most interesting facts in it is, and it's the thing that is peculiar or spooky or troubling or just wrong, about interest is that if I say 40 pieces of silver, what does that remind you of? What's that from? The Bible. Yes, the Bible. Good. Always say the Bible if you don't know. <laughs> um, and okay, so uh, Blade Runner, where's that from? Bible. Yeah, of course. It's Philip K. Dick is my Bible. So, or in that case, William Burroughs is my Bible. Since Philip K. Dick didn't use the term Blade Runner, that was William Burroughs. Now you learned something. The 40 pieces of silver, where in the Bible? Uh, it's what they pay Judas to betray Jesus. Right, so Judas betrays Jesus for 40 pieces of silver, and he then feels bad about it and hangs himself. Um, if he had invested, this is one of the facts in the, that little article. Did you read it on her? Yeah, okay, that's all right. People get fellowships, they stop reading. No, we should all applaud on her, though. Congratulations. So had Judas, instead of killing himself, invested the 40 pieces of silver at prevailing rates of interest between the year 30 or so when he got the 40 pieces of silver and now the amount of money it would have turned into, the payback in silver, would have weighed more than the entire earth. So that's the magic of compound interest. Everyone knows the difference between simple and compound interest? Is this, anyone not know? It's, uh, are you kind of indicating that you sort of know but sort of don't, or? No, does everyone really know? Okay, someone define compound interest? Yeah, Andrew. It's like always adding on itself, so if like you put in 100 and then like at the end of the year you have 110, then the interest is on the 100. Right. So you're paying interest on interest. So if you owe $100 and a year later you haven't paid any of it back and it's 10% interest, you now owe $110. And over the next year, the 10% interest will be done on the $110 rather than on the $100. So you'll owe $121 after two years and 10% on the $121 after three years, etc. So compound interest increases exponentially. Simple interest, how does that work? Yeah? So if you put in 100 and then next year would be 110, then 120, or it yeah. just goes out in the same. So you're only paying 10% on the original loan 
and not 10% on the interest that you haven't paid back, which seems fair to you guys, just without taking a position as borrower or lender, not which is better for the borrower, which is obvious, simple interest in most cases. There are ways you can mess around with it where it's not. But in most cases, simple interest is better for the borrower and compound interest is better for the lender, which seems fairer. If you don't know whether you're going to be borrower or lender and you are, you know, imagine a game where you and another player are going to be part of this game and the game is one where one person lends at interest to the other and the before the game is played, you and the other person pick between those two rules. The interest will be compound or the interest will be simple. And then, by a flip of the coin, you are made in that game, you are made either the borrower or the lender. So do you see what I'm saying? That is, you're trying to determine what's fairest by whatever definition you think is fair. You're trying to determine what's fairest before you know which position in the game you will play. So which would you think is fairer, simple or compound? Prue? I'd go with compound, because if you think about it in terms of like present value, mm -hmm. the longer it takes to like so the longer it takes to get the money back, the less valuable or the more cost it is to you to like not have the money in the present. Mm -hmm. So like it I lose more by like loading it to you for ten years and for five years. So technically, like the tenth year would be worth more than like the fifth year of loading it to you. Right. Okay, but you're still getting interest for each of those years. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy, oh, it looked like you were going to say something. Huh? I should play more games with you guys. I could make out like a bandit. Yeah, Andrew. Um, I do agree. I just devil's advocate with, or with simple interest, at the end of the year, if you're like putting it in a bank or something, mm -hmm. you can just take it out and put it back in, and then it's basically compound interest. Yeah. So one way of arguing for compound interest is to say if simple interest is fair for a year or for whatever period of time, let's stipulate. Do you, does everybody know what the word stipulate means in that context? I was actually... I didn't know until I was junior faculty what the word stipulate means. It's one of those words that you think you know what they mean, but you may not. Does anyone know what stipulate means? It's a good word to know the meaning of. So let's take it for as given. Let's take it as read. Let's not argue about whether this is true or not, but we will stipulate that this is true in order then to go on. And it's a legal term. If any of you is planning to go to law school, are any of you? Um, Oh, well, if you change your mind and decide you don't want to be poor and you go to law school, then what you will find is that in trials, both sides will often stipulate to certain things. That is, they will agree that, they're, that in the train crash, the conductor did nothing wrong. And it might be that the conductor did do something wrong, but as far as the argument that both the plaintiff or the complainant and the defendant or the respondent, the arguments that they want to make, neither of them wants to argue about the conductor, and neither of them wants their argument to have anything to do with what the conductor did. So there's a plane crash, and it might be that the conductor messed up somehow, but if both sides agree 
that they don't want to talk about the conductor. They can stipulate that the conductor did nothing wrong. So stipulations aren't necessarily true. They are agreed on for the sake of argument, and sometimes for the sake of argument, which is trying to apportion real blame, as though it's trying to find out the truth, which is what trials are supposedly doing. So let's stipulate. We're not saying that simple interest for a, for a given period of time is necessarily fair. Interest may not be fair at all. But let's stipulate that simple interest is fair. Then the argument that Andrea is making for compound interest is that if you lend at simple interest for a year, let's say you live in a society where you're not allowed to lend at compound interest, where it's illegal. So you lend a, so instead of lending someone $100 for 10 years and expecting them to pay back in compound interest, how could you get the same result in a society where the law is against compound interest? That, that's what Andrea was just saying, but how could you do it, someone else? Let's say both of you agreed that, that, it, that compound interest was okay. You wanted to borrow $100 for 10 years at compound interest. The lender wanted to lend you $100 for 10 years at compound interest. But Brandeis has a rule in rules and regulation that only allow people to lend to each other at simple interest. What do you do, Joe? Um, put like a one-year contract. Mm -hmm. Pretty much you uh, have to pay back, let's say, the 110 at the end of the year. And then you may renew the contracts and you do 10% on that. And you do that in 10 years. Yeah. So is that what you were going to say, Ian? Yeah. yeah, so what you do basically is it just makes it a little bit more awkward, which is so I borrow $100 for a year, and a year from now I go to you and give you $110, and you give it back to me immediately, and now you're lending me $110. And a year after that I give you $121, and you give it back to me immediately. And so compound interest is simple interest compounded, and instead of doing it that way, we just do it compound interest to begin with. But if compound interest is illegal in a society, then you have a legal fiction where you click on terms and conditions once a year, as you know you have to do with lots of things that you're signed up for on the internet. So once a year you accept the terms and conditions, and in this case once a year, you would simultaneously be paying back and borrowing the amount of money that you owed after the year that had just passed. And so you could turn simple interest into compound interest very easily that way. So one argument then for the fairness of compound interest, I think this is the argument that Prue was making, is that if I borrow $100 and I owe 110 after a year, but I only owe 120 after two years, and I only owe 200 after 10 years. Why would I want to borrow money at the highest possible rate of interest, which is $10 on $100, when I could borrow money at a much lower rate of interest, which is an average of $10 on what, turn, on what turns out to be a lot more money? over the course of the 10 years. So why would I, what's the incentive to pay back if it's simple interest when each year I'm borrowing more money than I did the year before, but I'm only paying $10 to borrow that money 
for the year. So for the first year, I borrow $100 and pay $10, right? If I don't pay it back, and I now owe 110 but I borrow that $110 and only pay $10. So it's more like a subscription to Hulu or something than it is borrowing at interest, because if the interest isn't compounding, then I'm just paying a fee not to pay the money back yet each year is all I'm doing. So I get to keep the money longer and longer. I'm paying a fee not to pay the money back. And so I, so I keep the money longer by paying a fee that goes down each year with respect to how, much, how long I've kept the money. That's one way of putting it. So compound interest takes care of that. Now, if you think of what Judas did by selling Jesus for 40 pieces of silver, is that after 2,000 years, it turns out that the discounted value of the whole world 2,000 years earlier is 40 pieces of silver. So the wealth of the entire world, if it were made of silver, which it's not, it's, the world is probably worth a bit more than its weight in silver, but if the world were made of silver, which it's not, its discounted value 2,000 years earlier would be simply 40 pieces of silver, you know, which is real money, but not a whole lot of money. So maybe it makes sense that compound interest is what the, you know the financial metaphor that's used for salvation? So what does Jesus do for humans? He saves us, but which is already a financial metaphor, possibly. But there's another word that's always used. He ransoms us. Good. What's financial about that? Ransom is paying a kidnapper, essentially. So <laughs> it's giving. It is a trend, a monetary transaction. Yeah, we've been. We are in a position where we can't escape for ourselves, and he has to pay for us in order to free us from the clutches of the person we were seduced by, or the figure, the, the bad angel we were seduced by, namely Satan. Um, another word that's used? What is Jesus? He is my shepherd. shepherd. That's the Lord. Um, I shall not want. Savior, yeah, there's another word that's frequently used. Redeemer. So what does it mean to redeem? Like trading for something else? Yeah, or it literally means to buy back. So he buys us back. How does he do it? What does he pay to buy us back? Himself. Himself, his own life. So he gives up his life to buy us back. Judas, he is the, the whole world. He pays, but early, his, the whole world, his whole life to buy us back, and then after a certain amount of time, that should be worth the whole world, which is what the 40 pieces of silver that he was actually sold for might indicate. So, so that idea that it's financial transaction, obviously that's not part of the biblical story as well. In 2,000 years, it'll be worth the whole world. That's not part of the story, but the financial metaphors used for the story, as with the talents, as with the, um, the, the servant or the slave who invests the talents versus the servant or the slave who buries them, who hides his talent. The idea is to increase 
the value of something. And that increase of value has something to do with the, or what, what is legit about it when it comes to the redemption of humanity and possibly not legitimate about it when it comes to investing 40 pieces of silver is that increase of value of living things makes sense. Increase of value of dead things does not make sense and is contrary, literally contrary to the laws of nature. What were you going to say? I think that the problem with compound interest is that it makes perfect sense, but only in a growing economy. Yeah. And uh, uh, and I've got like this is something I do with my UDOM is I've got this like you know wealth line of the world. I don't know if it's a hockey stick. Hockey. What a surprise! And and it's, it's an extremely recent phenomenon that we have economic growth. Yeah. And, and so I mean I would I totally see why before the year eighteen hundred it's it sounds fiend it's, it's it's fiendish like just the. Uh, uh, but now, of course, it, it makes like it's, it's relying on the idea that uh, that you know that we'll be wealthier in the future. So it's, then, then it makes it's in a sense trusting in the future. Yeah, the yeah. And it's trusting in the future, but the point, and this is what that article, which is, it's only 15 pages long, and it's very clear and, and really, really worth reading, uh, the Bisner article, that, the, I, that there's an ecological argument against compound interest, which is that values necessarily will end up, because they grow exponentially, it's a Malthusian argument, Values will grow exponentially. The, the cost of a loan will grow exponentially. If any of you is in credit card debt, you, you will know just what I mean. The cost of a loan grows exponentially, but the things in the world don't grow exponentially. So that if you buy, if you borrow money to buy an orchard and the money that you are a farm, and the money that a farm is actually a, a good um, word for it. If you buy money to buy, if you borrow money to buy a farm, and you owe money which is compounding, the no matter how much you grow, at first how much you grow might keep pace with how much you owe. That is, you buy some land, you plant some seeds, you get a bunch of corn the next year, you take a lot of that corn and plant the seeds from the corn that you just have, and you increase your yield by 20%, but you're only paying 10% interest in the money that you bought in, in the money that you borrowed. So instead of paying that money back, you reinvest it and take a lot of the seed that is left over that's extra and you plant that seed. And for a while you're not only keeping pace, you're doing better than the money you owe. And it's making more sense for you not to pay the money back than it is for you to pay the money back and not to be able to plant more corn each year. So, so far, you, you are in the black. Everyone knows the terms in the red and in the black. So, so far, you're in that. Do you know why it's called in the red and in the black? Why, why having a profit is in the black and why having a loss is in the red, Ian? I think it has something to do with the colors of pens people used to use when doing bookkeeping by hand. Yeah, so if you, to show that money was negative, you wrote it in red, and to show that it was positive, you wrote it in black. That's why old typewriters, do you know this? Do you guys know what typewriters are? <laughs> um, 
They're so cool. Have you ever seen one? Like a non-electric uh, manual typewriter? Have you ever tried using one? They're just so ingenious. They, they really are. They're worth it. Um, if you look at old typewriters, actually it's very hard to find this anymore, but if you look at old typewriters, you can still find ribbons. Do you guys know what ribbons are in a typewriter? They're the, okay, so you have a ribbon which is um, saturated with ink. And what happens is when you hit a typewriter key, the key hits the ribbon and presses it into the paper. And the ink from the ribbon is transferred to the paper. So the keys are not, they don't have ink on them. They do because they get dirty. And they, they get some of the ink from the ribbon and you have to clean them from time to time. But they don't have ink on them. They hit a ribbon made of silk or nylon and the ribbon has ink on it and when they hit the ribbon they press the ink into the paper and that's how you get a letter or a number on a piece of paper. Because there's a whole lot of typing that you'll want to do and only so much ink that can be at one part of a ribbon, every time you hit the ribbon it moves the length of a letter so that you get a fresh piece of, rib of ribbon. And so it's a little bit, the technology was kind of invented with toilet paper, which is that it's moving on a spool from left to right. Eventually this leads to cassettes and cassette tape recorders. All technology is just so cool. So the ribbons, if you look at a typewriter now, and you can see electric typewriters, ribbons are all black. But they used to be the top half of this long ribbon, which would be 40 or 50 feet long, would be black and the bottom half would be red. And there was a key on a typewriter that if you press down, it would move the ribbon up so that when you then hit a letter or a number, it, the, the, key, the, the typing part would hit the red part of the ribbon instead of the black part of the ribbon, and then you get red on the paper. And so you would use that red. The reason typewriters all had this was you would use the red to show a loss or to show a negative amount of money. Now the way you do it, and they did it then also, this was, to, this was just to make sure it was redundancy, is you put negative amounts in parentheses. So if you see a financial statement, there's stuff in parentheses, that means negative. Um, sometimes they'll put a, a minus sign but the parentheses is the real thing to pay attention to. But it used to be stuff that was red. Xerox machines messed that up because when you Xerox things, originally they only came out in black and white. So to be in the black means that it's a positive sum. To be in the red means that it's negative, that, that, that it's whatever that number is, but it's that much of a loss rather than that much of a gain. So you may be in the black for a while, which is to say that you're making more money than you owe. The amount you owe is red. The amount that you're making is black. If you subtract the red from the black, you get a black result, and so you're in the black. If instead, when you subtract the red from the black, you get a red result, that means a negative result, you're in the red. So that's where that idiom comes from, being in the black and being in the red. So you might be in the black for a while, but eventually, you're going to run out of farm. And eventually, the corn is going to be growing as densely as it is 
as it is biologically possible for corn to grow. And at that point, you won't be able to compound how much corn you are growing each year, but you are still paying compound interest on the money that you put into the farm. So money, this is a way of going back to what Aristotle says, which is that money as money is potentially infinite, whereas natural things on earth are finite. Yeah? Oh, no, it's just kind of... Okay. So, you know, you could buy more, you could buy another farm, and you could keep expanding, but there are always limits to expansion. And an argument that's been an argument for a long time between Malthusians on the one hand and rah-rah capitalists on the other is whether we can predict where those limits are, where those limits will be. So in the 1960s, there's famously a prediction by some Stanford biologists that there would be extreme shortages of things by the year 2000. They predicted absolute disaster by the year 2000, and the economists or the, the conservative economists, the, the highly capitalist economists were saying, no, capitalism will make sure there aren't sh shortages of things that looked like they were in short supply, things that looked like there was, they, they were finite resources. And they are finite resources, precious metals of various sorts that are used in manufacturing. And so there was an argument, and the biologists were proved wrong. That is, that the prices went down rather than up by the year 2000, because innovation and new ways of mining and new ways of using the things that were mined and using them in smaller quantities and so on, more than compensated for the fact that they were being used up. And so this is an argument that has gone on for a while. It's gone on. Do people know who Malthus, Thomas Malthus was? Who was he, Jimmy? He was like this uh, economist. Basically, he said that at some point, the Earth would run out of resources. And yeah. Not have been a at the time, because it was like the 1800s. People didn't think it would run out of resources. Yeah, so early 19th century, what he said was, if that populations grow exponentially, that is, that which is true, that in order for any species to reproduce, it has to, each generation, simply as a matter of fact, each generation has to have more offspring than the previous generation. Do you guys know what the replacement number of, uh, what, what the general agreed on replacement value is? What is it? Two. It's actually higher than two because babies die. or <laughs> they don't have children or um, other things happen to them. So on average, you need more than two children. If a couple needs more than two children, not three, but 2.1, I think, or 2.05 is, I think, the European replacement value is 2.05. You need, on average, 2.05 children for the population not to decline. And what that means is that it's baked in to reproduction, that some reproduction will fail. But what that means is that if none of it did fail, you would have exponential growth. And because if you had 2.1 children on average, 
then your 2.1 children would compound because each of them would have 2.1 children and you would have compound growth. Right? Does that make sense to people? If you think of it as if you have three children and each of them has three children, then you have a population explosion. Um, but you only need more than two on average to get exponential growth. Just as you only need to pay 1% interest on average for compound interest to eventually ruin you. 1% interest, that's why they do variable rate interest, by the way. And also, you know why you get, you can go to Apple and buy a new computer and you don't have to pay it back till December of 19. But if you do, all the interest will accrue. You all know those deals? Have you been trapped by them? Good. The whole point is that even if the interest deal looks sweet, the magic of compounding will turn it bitter in your mouth like ashes. No, I'm not speaking from personal experience. Why would you think that? So the, the idea then is if you need more than two children to, to make a population stable, the reason is that some will die without offspring. And the most benign version of some will die without offspring is, for whatever reason, they'll choose not to have offspring. And that's fine. That's the choice that they make in their lives. But some will die without offspring. And the less benign reason, especially in the 19th century, that some would die without offspring is that many of them will die in infancy or as children. And if they don't die in infancy or as children, then some other disease like the Spanish flu of 1919, which killed, I think, 1% of the entire world, will come and kill them. So one in 100 people died in 1919. That year, if you knew 100 people, one was definitely going to die of the flu. So, and if that didn't do the trick, well, there was always war, and war did the trick. So, so nature had many, many tricks for making sure that populations did not rise exponentially. And those tricks were essentially all one trick, which is to kill people. So nature and humanity as a representative of nature just made sure that lots of people died. And that meant that population would not increase exponentially. It did, and Malthus kind of figured out that population did increase arithmetically. That is, uh, essentially simple interest, that it was true that the world's population was, was growing and that was okay because food res resources were growing also. But the more you ameliorated, this is Mal Malthus's logic, the more you ameliorated the things that were killing people, the closer to an exponential growth of population you were going to get and the more likely widespread famine was going to be later. So it was a very pessimistic and grim idea that he had. And a lot of people think that he was wrong because innovation kept, started keeping pace with population growth in the 19th century. So that some of you know what the Green Revolution is? Is that a term anyone knows? So do you know it? Yeah, so in the 1960s, there was amazing research done into farming techniques and the yield of land and the kind of land that would yield crops was increased tremendously 
amazingly the amount of, especially in poorer countries, so the amount of, of things being grown in Africa, for example, quintupled, something like quintupled, and things grown in China and Japan, which were, China especially, was a place of famine, India was a place of famine, and the Green Revolution really, really, really increased the amount that was produced. So the idea is there's two things are going on. There's ecology, which seems to put a limit to how much growth is possible in nature, and there's economy, which is encouraging lending at interest and at compound interest. And they can go hand in hand for a while, and perhaps they're still going hand in hand, although now if you read the newspapers, what everyone is saying is we have to figure out what to do in a time of slow growth. And slow growth is another way of saying something like arithmetical growth. It's not really arithmetical growth, but the economy used to grow on average three in the U.S. at 3 or 4% a year, and now it's on average more like 1 or 2% a year. And so what happens in a time of slow growth? Well, for a long time, the economy only kept up with population increases. That is, people weren't making more money than their parents, because even though the economy was producing more, it was there were more people that it was producing more for. And debates about immigration now, that's ultimately what they come down to, which is if the economy is growing, but if the population is always growing, shouldn't we seek to limit population growth? And we certainly don't want to do that through Planned Parenthood, so we have to build a wall that is basically I think not unfairly, a not unfair um, summary of one side of the debate. And it's what's driving it is an ecological constraint, not that anyone's an environmentalist who's taking that side, but an ecological constraint on how fast nature can grow. So all of this goes back to the Merchant of Venice, where let's look at the debate which is an interesting one between Shylock and Antonio in um, the first in the scene. Sorry, I'm just going to tell you what scene it is in a second. As soon as I dig it out, I lost my spot. But in the scene where they are arguing, I should just look at comedies. Oh no, it doesn't do it that way. Where they are arguing about whether taking money on interest is a decent thing to do or not. And so if you, do you guys have your Shakespeare on computer at least? Um, so this would be in The Merchant of Venice. Act one. Scene three, is it? Yeah. I think so too. Um, yeah, where Shylock is hearing what it is that Antonio wants to borrow. And this is the whole land rats and water rats, I mean pirates part. And then Antonio comes in at around line 32. And Shylock tells us what he thinks about Antonio. So if you have that um, you can see what he's thinking. He says, how like a fawning publican he looks. I hate him for he is a Christian. 
so Shylock is a Jew and there's tension between Jews and Christians. We are supposed to be shocked by that, that the reason that is we, Shakespeare's audience, are supposed to be shocked by the fact that Shylock hates Antonio for being a Christian. On the other hand, once you read this play and you see how the Christians treat the Jews, you may think that being shocked by it, that Shakespeare wants us to see that our shock over this is hypocritical, that we, the Christian audience of 1600 watching this play and being shocked by Shylock's hatred is the 1600 version of something you could call like white fragility now. I hate him because he's a Christian. Oh, that's terrible. You know, the Christians have all the power, but still, that's terrible. So I hate him for he's a Christian. But more, for that in low simplicity, he lends out money gratis and brings down the rate of usance here with us in Venice. So what does he do? Why does Shalak hate him so much? Not only that he's a Christian, but... He offers loans without interest. Yeah, he offers interest-free loans. He lends out money gratis and brings down the rate of usance here with us in Venice. What's usance mean? Usury. Usury or use. What does the word usury mean? What do you think it means, literally? No. Sorry? Yeah, it's payment for the use of something. So it's got, the, it's got something like the meaning of rent. It doesn't actually mean rent, but like when you pay rent, which is one of the things that Aquinas is talking about, is it okay? Why is it okay to pay rent, but not okay to rent money? Which is, for Aquinas, eh, he doesn't think it's a hard question, but it's a question. That renting money is wrong, but renting a car, to take not his example, is okay. Why is one okay and not the other? But So usance means payment for use, let's call it that. But it also means the word usury comes to mean something like deterioration. That is, it's the used in used clothing or the used in used books or the used in gently used. So if you buy something that's used, why is it cheaper? Yeah? Because it's not brand new and it's like probably a little worn. Worn is the point. So that usury, and it, it literally means this in French, and it's in fact applied to coins, that coins get worn down, that money gets worn when it is used. In this case, it gets worn. There are various ways that money can be worn by being used. One is if you give someone a coin and they use it and then they get the same coin back, there'll be some of the, some of the um, it'll be eroded. Some of the precious metal on it will go away. Do you guys know what milling is? Anyone have a quarter? Yeah, do you know why coins have those? Why they have those little... Does no one have a quarter? You guys are all like Venmo? Okay, can... If you lend it to me for a minute, I'll give you 26 cents back. Oh, thank you. Oh. Somehow that's very... That's appropriate. So if you just feel... You've all done this, right? Felt the pleasure of the milling on your, on your fingernail? 
You've never done that? No. You haven't lived. <laughs> Has everyone else done that? No, but that's why fingernails are dead. It's okay to do stuff with your nails because they're dead. They're the part of you that's dead. They're like money. There's, it, it is believed in Norse mythology that the ship of the dead is made of the fingernails of all the living that they've cut. That the dead, that, that the gods of the dead collect all the fingernails that you've cut or bitten over time and, and spat out, and they put it all together, and so the ship of the dead is made out of fingernails. You, t- you think so? I think it's way cool. But shouldn't the ship of the dead be disgusting? I guess, but like, can you imagine the smell? Like, that's the first thing you see when you're dead. Like, you're on the ship. And Don't you think? I'm just like disgusting, like Norse fingernails. How long does this date back? Like, how long is this? 1952. 19. No, <laughs> it's a it's a medieval idea. It's like Thor. They knew that it was like this was a dead part of your body. Well, they knew that people cut their nails without crying out. That is that somehow, I mean, that is our attitude towards nails. It has to be our attitude towards nails is that, is that they are the part of us that's not us but a tool within us, right? I mean, some really special people get sentimental about it. <laughs> is that true? Have you ever seen horrors? <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, it's okay to, to test the milling. Did you try? Me? Yeah. yeah. Just now? Wasn't that cool? No. You didn't think that was a neat? Okay, if you had to either test the milling or I would go scratch the blackboard, which would you prefer? Oh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Here, quick. Grab a quarter. Okay. Before. What? I'm not going to make the whole class suffer. So why would you suffer if I scratched the blackboard? Well, it wouldn't bother me as much. No one really knows why scra- why when someone else scratches a blackboard, it freaks everyone out. But it does. Yeah. Yeah. If you play people those sounds and they don't know what they're hearing, it doesn't bother them at all. You can record sounds of, of forks on metal forks on empty plates. Of like. Yeah. Like, that doesn't feel good. No. But... <laughs> Do you like the sensation of dragging your nails across the chalkboard? See, that's not pleasant. Like, so then why would course. you do it with the quarters? Because the quarter is... It, it's just, like, interesting. No? So for, for tactile people, it's interesting. And at any rate, why are they milled? Anyone know why coins are milled They're like that? Machines. Sorry? No. <laughs> They've been milled since the beginning of coinage. To see how old they are? Yeah, because what happens is as they wear down, the milling disappears. So if you look at a nickel, that's what old quarters look like. Nickels are not milled and pennies are not milled because it's not worth doing it. But if you look at a nickel or a penny, that's what quarters will eventually look like if they stay in circulation long enough and what dimes will eventually look like if they stay in circulation long enough. So what happens is if they are made of precious metals, then they 
you're showing that the milling shows that the metal, that most of the metal is still there. And as the milling wears away, the coin is used up, and that is a form of usury, or at least there's a related word which has to do with the used of meaning worn, meaning used up, as in used clothing or used books. So, and we have um, a couple of minutes, yes. So Antonio is, according to Shylock, he lends out money gratis and brings down the rate of usance here with us in Venice. If I can catch him once upon the hip, I will feed fat the ancient grudge I bear him. So if I once get him, I'm going to be really happy. My, I will diet my revenge, as he puts it later. And then he's so busy being angry at Antonio that he doesn't hear what Bassanio wants, which is to borrow money. And then he says, okay, I'm trying to see if I have enough money. Uh, 3,000 ducats, but I will go ask Tubal, this is now at line 52, a wealthy Hebrew of my tribe will furnish me. But soft, how many months do you desire? By the way, here's a, here's a quick question for you. Do you guys know the song, It's All About the Benjamins? You know that, that this, is, this is a big subject of, of debate right now? What? It's All About the Benjamins? It's a Puff Daddy song? So how many people know the song? No? You know the song. Do you know the anti-Semitic line in the song? I did not know there was an anti-Semitic line in it. Okay, because when it was released for radio, the anti-Semitic line was, was removed from it. Um, it's the anti-Semitic line is um, uh, that you should do, you should stack chips like the Hebrews. So the idea is if it's all about the Benjamins, you should be trying to make money. That's what the whole song is about, is, is make and keep money. And uh, you, you should do what we do, which is to stack chips like the Hebrews, is one of the couplets in the song. So one reason I'm asking is it's not clear that Omar knew that line in the song when she cited the title. Um, when, she, when she said it was all about the Benjamins, which is why she was being attacked for old, old tweets that she had done, why there was so much attention being paid to what she was saying. So this is a huge thing now. It was a, or you guys probably know it was a huge thing in the news this week. Okay, so anyhow, most of you don't know the song at all. All right, do you know what a Benjamin is? Yes. What? Okay, so you do know that. All right, what's a grand? Yes, good. Yeah, and owner just got a grant, so it's all good. Grant in another in another sense of the word grant. All right, um, try to read through what I gave you guys today, and we and we'll talk more. Uh, also. Well, we'll talk about interest and more about the Merchant of Venice tomorrow. And then break, vacation, yay. I'm reading up on this limits to growth thing because I'm really in the Yeah. Do you have any, like, like suggestions? Because I, my, I don't, I think, you know, like the slow, like the this current slow growth phenomenon, I, I, is it? I, I think you just have to, I don't have particular suggestions. I, I 
it's certainly an issue now, and it's the question whether getting rid of regulations can return us to 1950s-style growth is what is hotly debated, but it seems like everyone reasonable thinks no. Yeah, there's this and it, it's also stuff in China, the question of how fast growth can continue in China, also in India. I, I have some, uh, some, uh, some 